This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. At the very least, it was an unusual posture to find a drowning victim. And she was dressed only in a pink silk teddy, stockings and pumps, and that was it. Also very unusual for a drowning victim. So the police couldn't tell what they were looking at. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author James Stewart wrote a book about a mysterious murder in Jazz Age San Diego, where gangsters mingled with flappers who had drinks with sailors and speakeasies during Prohibition. What a scene. His book is called Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage. So let's talk a little bit about the book and set the scene for me. Where are we? Well, we're in San Diego in 1923, January 1923. San Diego was a kind of a unique place at the time. They had a lot of the same problems as far as the prohibition, corruption, and vice and all that sort of thing that you had in the bigger cities. But San Diego was only about 80,000 people at that time. It wasn't the eighth largest city in the country as it is now. So it was rather provincial and out of the way. And it was a tourist town, a border town, a seaport, and a military town, which makes it pretty unique at that time. So that kind of exacerbated the law enforcement challenges. The fact that it was on the border, the fact that it was a seaport, made it easy to bring in the illegal hooch. (laughs) And, you know, the demand was there because you had the military, you had the Navy. So that created the demand for the vice. This was the jazz age, right? So everybody wants to party and there are the speakeasies and the dance halls and all that sort of thing. So the the fact that it was on the border made it easy to bring in vice from Tijuana. Tijuana was huge. In fact, when Prohibition happened, that was the best thing that ever happened to them. They had a racetrack down there. They had cantinas and bars and brothels and everything else down there. And so a lot of people just went across the border, which is like 17 miles south of San Diego, and they could go there and drink liquor and everything else legally. <laughs> place bets. It wasn't hard to get across the border either way. 
It was probably harder for them to come this way. But if you've seen pictures in the early 20s of the border, you see like this little shack and a couple of cars. That's their security. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's not like now. So I don't think they would have had any problem coming across. So Fritzy Mann is the subject of your book. She ultimately becomes a victim. She's born about what, 1903? She's 20 years old when the main crux of the story happens. She was a few months short of her 21st birthday when she died. She was from an immigrant Jewish family. Her father was from Poland. Her mother was from Hungary. And they ended up settling in Sarajevo, Bosnia. And that's where the three children of the family were born. The oldest brother was her brother, William, who was four years older than her. She had an older sister, two years older, named Helen. And then Fritzi was the baby. They came over in 1910 a few months before Fritzi turned eight years old. So they did the typical thing coming over on the ship. They came over on the SS Martha Washington. And the funny thing was, this was not a prosperous family at all. I'm sure they came here for better opportunities and to have a better life, but they ended up traveling first class. Hmm. Which, you know, if the ships back then, when you were down in baggage or down in third class, it was horrible especially in the winter when they came. They came over in January. You can imagine the North Atlantic crossing. But they had some help from her family who had moved over to Nashville and had kind of come leading citizens. Her brother was a jeweler and he met them on the pier. They stayed in Nashville for a brief time and then they went on to Denver. And the reason they went to Denver was her father had tuberculosis, which was the real scourge at the time. Everybody was worried about getting tuberculosis all the time. So... Her father, whose name was Esau, already had tuberculosis when he came. And that probably was one reason why they were glad to travel in first class, because the public health service officers who checked them out for that sort of thing just gave him a cursory glance and he managed to hide his symptoms. Whereas if he would have been in third class or they would have ended up at Ellis Island in that all day long process of getting screened. So I suspect that was part of the reason why they did that. Mm. So... It wasn't discovered, but in Denver, it was known at the time as the World Sanitarium for tuberculosis because it was the dry mountain air, a lot of sun. Yeah. And so that was the reason for that. And then they also had a couple of sanitariums specifically for Jewish consumptives, as they called them then. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, tuberculosis and consumption are the same thing. They stayed in Denver until 1920 when their father died of consumption. And during the time at her teen years in Denver, she trained under a, at the time, fairly well-known prima ballerina who had actually danced with Anna Pavlova, who was the most famous and influential ballerina probably in history. Her name was Domina Marini. She was Fritzi's mentor. She trained under her. She performed with her in Denver, where Marini had retired from dancing, so to speak, from the touring anyway, and was teaching not only ballet, but also interpretive dancing, which was a really big deal then. Hmm. You never hear that term anymore. But back then, it was a very big deal in entertainment. Can you explain what that is? (laughs) The whole idea behind it is to physically translate these traditional myths and legends and things like that, mostly from the Middle East and Asia. It lent itself this exotic air. The dancers wore these, for the time, skimpy outfits, but they were very exotic looking. So they played up the Middle Eastern theme and the Asian theme, and that was Fritzy's style, was uh, interpretive dance, because it was hugely popular. 
And what age is this where she starts with this? She started dancing, the best I could tell, around 12 or 13. Okay. She would have been 17 or, yeah, 18 when her father died. And then the following year, 1921, her mother decided to relocate to San Diego. And just like with Denver, it wasn't something that she picked out of the hat. San Diego was also known as being good for consumptives. You know, you've got the sun most of the year. It's dry. It's ocean air. It's kind of a unique place in that regard, Southern California anyway. And so she hoped that San Diego weather might cure her daughter, Helen. Fritzy's oldest sister, Helen, a couple of years older, had consumption. I'm surprised the whole family didn't get it from the father if it was severe enough to kill him. Right. It's funny because I actually was exposed to tuberculosis when I was a kid. I mean, I actually knew people who had consumption when I was young. You know, <laughs> it was still around then. You're dating yourself, I think, James. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well. But uh, I actually was exposed to it. So when I do the little PPD tests, uh-huh. when I first went in the Navy, they did that test and it showed positive for TB. And it just showed that I was exposed to it. I never had developed an active case to it. And I think back then, probably most people had been exposed to it. And certainly her family had been. Okay. The best I could tell, no one else other than her father and her sister developed active cases to it. Okay. That was why they went to San Diego. So her mother moves Fritzy and Helen to San Diego. The family goes to San Diego to be in this really nice weather that will hopefully alleviate some of the symptoms that Helen is having. And Fritzy, I guess, starts doing dance now in San Diego. Now that she's left Denver, she continues on with this career. Yes, she does. And it's kind of curious. They came here in the late fall of 1921. And in January of 22, exactly one year before her death, she performed at one of the large theaters downtown called the Colonial. It was kind of in the top tier along with the Spreckles Theater and the Savoy. And there was a couple of others. And it's kind of interesting that So quickly after arriving in town, she performed the solo finale at this big program. It was like 1,400-seat capacity theater that was packed during her performances. What I was able to find out was is that she came to San Diego with a letter of introduction from a well-known dancer, presumably her mentor. And that seemed to be her calling card. And then she was selected for this week-long program that ran in early January and dance finale. What is her personal life like between ages 17 and 20? She's living with her family? Yeah, she, she was living with her family up until the end. She lived with her family. She worked when she could, and she took whatever she could get. I mean, there was that big program, but then a lot of the other ones were at much smaller venues. And her brother also, he worked full time. So I think he was kind of the primary breadwinner in San Diego. He worked as an accountant for the Navy. But she supplemented that with her earnings from dancing. Okay. So she now is 20 years old and she hasn't had her father for three years and her sister is sick with tuberculosis and her mother is, I'm sure, in total misery. Yes. And they're depending on their brother for an income and she's dancing, but surely it's a struggle. Is she dating at age 20? Yes. At least in 22 that we know of, she dated a few guys starting around May or June. She may have dated before that, but I couldn't find any information on it. But she dated a few different men during that summer and fall 
into the next year. Did you get a sense for her personality? Yes. She was very vivacious. She was outgoing. She was an extrovert. If you look at the pictures of her, she just exudes confidence, which, you know, at that time and that age, a proper woman then would have been demure. I think Demure went out the window in the jazz age. <laughs> well, he did, yeah, largely. Much to the chagrin of people who were really trying to push for and keep prohibition in place. Yes, the conservatives, uh, the traditionalists. There was really a big dichotomy between the frivolity and party atmosphere of the jazz age and traditionalists who really wanted to enforce the Victorian moral code. So you had the advancement of women's rights. You had a lot of other things going on. Prohibition comes in, makes all that illegal. Birth control and abortion are illegal. All of these things are fundamental to the story. I spend a lot of time talking about the culture war. The interesting thing about the culture war that was happening at the time is that it looks just like the one going on now. The rhetoric was the same. The issues, the flashpoints were exactly the same. They were abortion, gender, race, immigration. And the traditionalists trying to pull you back into the Victorian age and the younger set in particular. Trying to push you forward. (laughs) Trying to push everything forward. So, I mean, there's nothing new about that, but this was one of those times like now where all of that comes to a head. Where do things start to become difficult for Fritzi? She had spent... From mid-November 1922 until mid-January, two months before her death, she had gone to L.A. She had done her last performance in San Diego, which was this little sailor stag party, believe it or not. It sounds salacious, but it wasn't. Well, you don't hear stag much. No. I don't hear people say stag or hooch. So this has been very refreshing, James, to hear you talk about. I love these terms. Yeah, well, I tried to use a lot of those words, you know, and sailor stag party in a Navy town has a (laughs) specific connotation, but it wasn't that way. Okay, She just did her normal dances. And then shortly after that, she went to the L.A. area. Now, what was she doing in L.A.? Hollywood was in the crosshairs of traditionalists from very early on. In the 1920s, it felt like it really hit a peak. Absolutely true. And that also plays a big role in the story. Fritzy was trying to break into Hollywood. She tried several times. Now, the extent that she tried is hard to say, but another one of the mentors she claimed was a silent film actor named Theodore Koslov. And he was also, before he became a silent film star and choreographer, he was a famous ballet star working for a famous company, Diagilev's company over in Paris. And he later on started working for Cecil B. DeMille at the Famous Players, which was the number one studio. So she claimed that he was her mentor. Now, I was never able to find out exactly what she meant by that. She probably exaggerated her connection to him. Hmm. But if you have a dancer trying to break into Hollywood, he was the best route to go. You get on with him at his school in L.A., downtown L.A., and it's one step there right into Cecil B. DeMille's productions. So we know she was trying to do that, but a lot of that is kind of shrouded in mystery. Her friends couldn't shed light on anything at all? Her friends were kind of tight-mouthed about things, especially when it came out what she was really doing in the L.A. area. Okay. But early on, she's supposedly dancing. I think she might have been trying to break into Hollywood again, but she was also keeping a big secret that doesn't come out until after her death. The whole mystery revolves around that. Tell me what happened in January of 1923. 
she was staying with a friend of hers. Her name was Bernice Edwards. They had known each other in Denver. And Bernice's family had moved to Long Beach, a suburb south of LA, just around the same time Fritzy and her family moved to San Diego and they kept in touch. So part of the time she was in LA, Fritzy stayed with Bernice. She left her house one week before her death, arrived on the morning of 8 January. And immediately her mother knew something was up because she was dressed in this outrageous outfit, like a flapper. Hmm. <laughs> Fritzy didn't own anything like this. Wherever she got her dance costumes is, is also kind of a mystery, but she didn't own an outfit. It was a very fancy party dress with a long brown dress, uh, or relatively long, copper beads on it, the roads of beads. You've seen these uh, 1920s flappers dress in. She had a hat with a feather in it. Sounds like a costume. Yeah, but it was certainly a party dress. And she told her mother she was going to a party. Her mother kind of chastised her for wearing that on an overnight train ride. She wore that. She arrived home in that the next morning after sleeping, sitting up on a train all night long. And she had borrowed that from Bernice. She started talking about this party in Del Mar she was going to. She refused to be specific about it. She said a man was coming down from L.A. and was going to take her to a house party in Del Mar, but would not say who he was. And this was out of character for her. Usually her mother wanted to know exactly where she was going, what she was doing, especially for this new dating thing that was going on. But she was vague about it. She wouldn't give the man's name. And her mother knew some of the men she was dating because they had come by the house to pick her up. And she knew that. But her mother knew something was going on. And she kept trying to get her to stay home and not go to the party on Sunday night. But Fritzy said, don't worry, everything will be all right. And she gets on the streetcar and then goes downtown. And about 20 minutes after she left the house that evening, she called her mother and said the house party would actually be in La Jolla, hmm. but was again being very vague. And her mother just kept telling her, where are you going? Why don't you tell me where you're going? And all this sort of thing. And Fritzy just says, it's a quiet place. Don't worry. Well, she wasn't going to a house party in Del Mar. Okay. It was a cover story. The next day, her body was found on Torrey Pines Beach which is a very well-known state park now, Torrey Pines, just north of La Jolla. It's kind of it's between La Jolla and Del Mar, as a matter of fact. So it was in the area of where Fritzy said she was going. At the time, it was kind of a lonely place, especially at night. Nobody would have been around that area. But the next morning, his family stopped for a picnic lunch at noon, and they found her body. And when the cops got there, the scene just, it was a big conundrum because they couldn't figure out what they were looking at. There was a lot of strange things about the scene. You know, when a body washes up in San Diego, you normally assume that the victim drowned. It happens all the time here. It always has. But her clothes were strewn about the beach. They found some of the articles, a handbag and a vanity case, 500 yards south on the rocky embankment that led down to the beach. Her dress was found a few hundred feet away at the bottom of the embankment. Her body looked like it had been posed to some people. Mm -hmm. Her feet were together. Her hands were folded across her chest. Oh. Now, there's a lot of variations in the witness statements exactly what her posture was. But at the very least, it was an unusual posture to find a drowning victim. And she was dressed only in a pink silk teddy, stockings and pumps. And that was it. Also very unusual for a drowning victim. So the police couldn't tell what they were looking at. Hmm. First, they thought accidental drowning. Went, How did she get here? Because the nearest train station was a couple of miles away. 
The trolleys didn't go out that far. There was no cars. Fritzy didn't drive, didn't own a car. How did she get there? So somebody drove her is what they concluded. Clearly. So that right there was one of the things. At least one other person knows what happened to her. Regardless if she waited out and committed suicide or if she was murdered or if it was an accidental drowning. These people going to these roadhouses and drinking bathtub gin <laughs> do crazy things sometimes. Fell off a cliff and that's it. Yeah, right. So who knows? So they were very flabbergasted by the scene. They couldn't tell. And the coroner, who was not a medically trained medical examiner, he was an elected coroner, had her body delivered to a local funeral parlor, as they called it back then, an undertaking establishment. (laughs) They called them (laughs) undertakers. And the coroner did not have facilities for his autopsy surgeon to do autopsies. The autopsy surgeon did them in funeral parlor morgues, preparation rooms, as they called them. Mm -hmm. So the doctor... He got there and they had already drained most of the blood from her body in preparation for embalming. Oh, gosh. Which was a major screw up, obviously, because apparently the undertaker didn't get the word that an autopsy was required. Wow. It was required. It was an unattended death. It was mystifying circumstances. Wow. And whether the coroner neglected to tell him, whatever. So most of her blood was gone when the autopsy surgeon walked in and started yelling at the undertaker to stop. Did they have the capability in the 1920s to do a liver temperature test to determine her time of death? I don't think so. Yeah. It was mostly done by the state of rigor. Yeah. And she was advanced, you've got to assume, right? Yeah. According to the autopsy surgeon, rigor was present. Earlier, a lot of the witness said that she was in an advanced state of rigor. But it was a chilly night, and, you know, the water in San Diego is cool even in the summer. Yeah. So in January, it was quite cold. So that can throw off the time of death. But based on the circumstantial evidence and the state of rigor, they figured she died the previous night on Sunday night, probably a few hours after she left home. Okay. After she told her mom she was going from one place to then La Jolla. Correct. Okay. So they've drained blood, which is a big no-no. Are they able to get anything? Is there water in her lungs? Do they know if she drowned or a cause of death? Yes. There were two significant findings, one of which was a big secret. First of all, she did drown, okay? And she was pregnant. She was four months pregnant. So you have here a scandal. You have a 20-year-old woman, single. At that time, this was a major scandal. Abortion, even birth control is illegal. So what is a 20-year-old woman to do at that time? Not have sex is what I think the the hope was. (laughs) That's what the traditionalists would say. But of course, it takes two to tango. And that all is fundamental to the mystery of what happened to her. So that was the two big things that came out. So obviously, that added to the salaciousness of the story. Another one of the big things that affected the case and how it happened was the yellow journalism that was yep. that reigned at the time, which I know you're familiar with. We almost don't need to talk about it, but we will. <laughs> right. Wait, I do have one question about the autopsy, though. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining the conversation I'm having with you in my head where I ask you, were there signs of trauma? And you say, yes, maybe, but it's hard to tell because she got washed up on rocks. She probably didn't get washed up on rocks. She was found in the wet sand. Okay. Kind of left there by the outgoing tide, kind of embedded in the sand. She did have 
superficial abrasions on her elbows, knees. She had some little other superficial abrasions, but nothing that specifically you can get that just from drowning in the surf. So that wasn't suspicious. She did have a small bruise over one eye that could have been caused by a blow. The autopsy surgeon thought that it had been done before she died, but he couldn't really say when. And it was a superficial wound, so was not the cause of her death. Toxicology-wise, wouldn't they be able to tell if there's anything in her system? Do they find anything? They didn't take toxicology. Oh, gosh. Now, the second <laughs> autopsy was later performed, and they did do it. But the fact that her blood was drained yeah. may have had some impact on that. They were limited at the time of what they could do, but they certainly could test for poisons and some other things, and they didn't do any of that. So that was unfortunate. Why do you think this was botched? Is this just an incompetent, small police force that's overwhelmed with criminal enterprise that's happening in San Diego? Or did she fit into some type of category where she was dismissed a little bit more than other victims might be? That's a very good point because she was what they pejoratively called at the time an oriental dancer. Traditionalists would look at what she did on the stage and say, well, she's just trying to turn men on. Because the sinuous movements that those dancers did to try to physically translate, it came off with an erotic effect, whether that was the intention, which usually it wasn't. But this case was not treated (laughs) superficially by the police because it immediately blew up in the press and was hyped. You had a beautiful dancer, an exotic dancer, as they termed it a lot at the time, found under mystifying circumstances. Her mother must have just lost her mind. She was a woman on the edge to begin with, having just lost her husband and now nursing her sick daughter. It was horrible. And when you read about her reactions to things and the way it was portrayed in the press, her brother read the paper and presumably her mother the next morning. She wasn't back. She had said she would call or be back the next day. She wasn't back the next morning. So... She was gone all day, and then the following morning, she still wasn't back. And so her brother reads the newspaper and reads about this young woman who washed up on the beach at Torrey Pines. He went down to the funeral home, and it was, in fact, her. And then I guess later, he brought his mother. Didn't they have her pocketbook with her identification in it? Didn't you say it was further down on the coast? I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's one of the things that was kind of strange about the scene. Her vanity case and handbag were found about 500 yards south of where her body was found, as if they had been tossed out of a car. Hmm. Another thing that kind of led the cops to think, hey, this is suspicious. Somebody else had a hand in this. And inside of her vanity case, there were a number of calling cards and business cards, and also a blank white card written in her hand that said, I am Fritzy Mann, and gave her address. So they should have known it was her, but at first they didn't. And in fact, the previous night, the coroner had called her brother up asking to speak to her. He didn't identify himself or say that he had an unidentified woman's body down at this funeral parlor. He just said it was Fritzy Mann home. And she says, no, I don't know where she is, and we don't know how to reach her. And, and he didn't identify himself. So there was definitely some incompetence there that happened. And like you said, it was a small police force, too. So the police chief was not incompetent. He's considered one of the best in San Diego history. And he did a lot of the investigation and the interviews himself. But he did have a small force. They were barely getting into the modern age. The crime scenes weren't secured. You had civilians traipsing all over the beach scene. 
So they start interviewing people. So they're looking at her world, right, her inner circle, and they start making discoveries that I'm assuming we're going to hear about a list of suspects. When her mother saw her body, she screamed out a man's name, Rogers Clark, Mm. an unusual name. Rogers Clark III, as a matter of fact. Fritzy had dated him the previous fall. As it turns out, around the time she got pregnant, he was kind of known as a playboy. He's older, right? She's 20. He was about 17 years older, yes. Yeah, so she was 19 when they dated, right? So that made him in his mid-30s. Okay. Correct. Before she started dating that guy, she had dated a doctor who worked for the Public Health Service named Louis Jacobs. He worked at the VA hospital north of San Diego, and She had been seeing him for several months, starting around April or May of the previous year, until sometime before she met this other guy. And then about a month later, she found out she was pregnant and confronted the doctor with it, said, I'm pregnant. You have to help me. Because she wanted to get married. To Dr. Jacobs. Yes. And her mother approved of this doctor, knew him pretty well. What was her relationship like with these two men separately? Well, she was in love with the doctor. Okay. According to her friends, the police managed to drag that out of them. Bernice Edwards, her best friend up in Long Beach, knew that she was pregnant and knew why she had come back to San Diego. So they had these two suspects. And then on Wednesday, a couple of days after her body was found, they found the Blue Sea Cottage. It's a love nest is what it sounds like. Well... That's the way the papers made it out. That's not why they went there. She was four months pregnant, you got to remember. And the doctor had refused to marry her. And he said he would help her, meaning I will help you arrange an abortion. Hmm. But the police didn't find out about this until the next big break, which was when they discovered this correspondence that Fritzie had left behind at Bernice Edwards' house in Long Beach. She had left it there in her suitcase when she came back. Because supposedly she was just going to San Diego for a short trip then returning to L.A. and resume her career. And the telegrams and letters between her and Dr. Jacobs made it obvious that he was trying to arrange an abortion in L.A. for her. But the autopsy surgeon didn't find evidence, I'm assuming, of a botched abortion, which I think is pretty clear. It was absolutely clear. There was no surgery performed. Okay. That remains one of the big mysteries of the case, exactly how she died. He tried to arrange an abortion, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Fritzie said she couldn't find the doctor that he sent her to. By that time, Fritzie was kind of, I think, in a bad way. She was very sick from morning sickness. We're talking about in December before she returned home. She was very sick. And I think the stress of the whole situation had really gotten to her. She finally threatened the doctor 12 days before she died in a one-line telegram that says, if you don't contact me right now, words to this effect, I will come there and I will stop at nothing, which means I will expose this scandal. That's what the doctor was trying to keep from happening. He didn't want to marry her. He was going to try to arrange an abortion, which is illegal. This would have got him probably fired or disciplined by the public health service because it was illegal. And it would have been a major scandal. And he was a social player in San Diego. So she threatened to expose. This was a common motive for murder back then. Yeah, It happened to a lot of cases I could think of off the top of my head. So the police find this correspondence. They figure out what's happening. She's pregnant. He says, I'll help you get an abortion. And now she's dead. They arrest him. Is that what happens? 
They arrest both guys. They arrested Dr. Jacobs and Rogers Clark. The movie director. The movie director, actor, which it turns out he worked for a very small, fledgling kind of company. Okay. But he was tall. (laughs) He was handsome. He was a lady killer or a chic, as they called it back then. (laughs) He kind of fit that mold. But Dr. Jacobs had told the cops that she had come to him the Friday before her death. That was the last time he saw her, he claimed. She said that she was pregnant. He claimed this was the first time he had ever heard about it. He didn't do it, but she asked him to perform an abortion. And he said no, and that was the last time he saw her. Both guys looked guilty at the beginning. (laughs) You know, you had the circumstantial evidence against Jacobs. And then when the correspondence came out, he made it clear he was trying to arrange an abortion. So tell me how the trial goes, because ultimately Dr. Jacobs goes on trial. Correct. A few months later, he goes on trial. There's a grand jury first, and they indict him, and he goes to trial for first-degree murder. What's the major evidence that the district attorney has? It's all circumstantial. Mm. They showed that Jacobs was heading to meet Fritzy at the same time she was heading to meet this mysterious man at the same place and the same time. They nailed that down pretty well. It's obvious that she met him, although he never admitted that. And then they know that she went to the Blue Sea Cottage after that because... They found some of her things in this room. And it turns out on that night, Fritzy and this mysterious man who later became known as the mysterious Mr. Johnston checked into this beach cottage. According to the manager, they were there for a few hours only and then left. And they found that the room had been disturbed a little bit. There was some water in the tub. The woman who cleaned the place said they looked like they're some rust-colored remnants in the tub that might have been blood. There was a blood spot on the bed. Some of Fritzy's things were left there as if in a panic. And it turns out that it's clear that this is where she died. So the drowning was in a bathtub, not in the ocean. Is that right? Well, that's my opinion. There's nothing in the autopsy surgeon's report that talks about saltwater versus bathwater? Well, this was a long, drawn-out thing during the trial, and they both had their medical experts. The medical testimony was the thing that the entire case hinged on. Yeah. The prosecution said she drowned in the bathtub at the Blue Sea Cottage. Mm -hmm. His theory, the prosecutor's theory, was that they had gone there. Jacobs decided to do the abortion himself, or at least he told Fritzy that. He was going to do it in the beach cottage, apparently. And according to the evidence, it looks like that he was intending to do that. And to be clear, an abortion in the 1920s would have been very risky and dangerous for the woman. Extremely risky. Yeah. And in most cases, they would have used some kind of anesthesia, chloroform, ether, one of those things, which at the time was very unpredictable. Right. You had to know what you were doing. You had to know what you're doing. And if you're a doctor who doesn't normally perform abortions, and you're doing it in a beach cottage by yourself, imagine how risky that was. Yeah. So she didn't die from a botched abortion. The prosecutor thought that he attempted or he started one. He either killed her accidentally with the anesthesia or he drowned her in the bathtub. The tub had clearly been used. There were some wet towels there. There was some remnants of water in there. If he did drown her in the tub, the logical thing for a doctor to do in a panic would have been to dump her body on the beach to try to make it look like an accidental drowning or a suicide because she was despondent. There's no question. She had every reason to be despondent. And she was. And he was the cause of that. And he really played that up to the cops in his statements. He tried to make it and the defense tried to make it look like a suicide. It was also a common reason for suicide. 
a single pregnant woman with no other options. Right. No defensive wounds. Right. Remind me again, toxicology. At the end quest, a couple of days after her body was found, her brother insisted on a second autopsy. Now, his reason mainly for doing that was the state of her pregnancy, which was four to four and a half months at the time of her death. Mm -hmm. That didn't match up with what he said that the coroner had told them early on after the autopsy. So he wanted a second autopsy and a different doctor performed the, the second autopsy and he confirmed that it was a drowning and he confirmed that she was four to four and a half months pregnant. He did take samples of blood and tissue samples for toxicology. He found nothing and they were not able to determine whether it was salt water or fresh water. Okay, forget about the fresh water versus ocean water. Wouldn't you think that you would have to apply pressure, there would be struggle, there would be some kind of marks on her other than these natural abrasions to drown someone, whether they're in a bathtub or in the ocean? Yes, and this fed into the prosecutor's theory. He thought that he gave her the anesthetic, knocked her out, drug her in there and put her head into the bathtub. But they didn't find the anesthetic, is that right? They did not find it. He got rid of it. So what ultimately happened? So there's a hung jury. The jury can't agree. Second trial? Yeah, the prosecutor who was politically ambitious, and this was taking place in an atmosphere of <laughs> political corruption anyway, and he insisted on, the prosecutor insisted on trying him again for first-degree murder, premeditated. He just didn't have the evidence to prove it. Right. It was all circumstantial. He couldn't say exactly how she died. Right. And so there was probable cause for doubt. So the jury made the correct decision based on our system of justice. There's another way he could have drowned her. And I found this out during some of my medical research, talking to a formal medical examiner and other people. There was a famous case in England in the teens called The Brides in the Bath. Yeah. You may have heard of. I have, yeah. Well, if you're taking a bath in that kind of tub and somebody yanks your ankles up all of a sudden, it knocks you out instantly because the water rushes up and through your nose and knocks you out and you drown. So that's another way he could have killed her. Wouldn't you have been able to see there's no abrasion on the back of her head if that happens? No. Well, I mean, there were, there were abrasions on her body, but that was probably incident to him moving her body out of the tub, carrying it out to the car, yeah. and then taking her, you know, eight miles away and dumping her on the beach, dragging her through the sand. He wasn't a very big guy and not very healthy, so he probably would have had to drag her most of the way. So that would have counted for the abrasions. Okay, so let me see if I can wrap this as far as making a decision, at least in my head, on this. So you've got a young woman who's 20, who has ambition, but she's pregnant. This would have been a disaster for her. She's interested in an abortion. She's dating a doctor. He has promised her to help her. Then they meet, but she has been threatening him that we need to figure something out. If you're not going to marry me, something needs to change. They meet, and then she ends up dead. So we are now trying to weigh, I think in this case, the probability of someone who took her own life because she's in such despair because of how society treated women who were single and pregnant versus the probability of a doctor who has a good reputation snapping and committing murder out of sheer panic because he's impregnated a woman. Where did you fall? She did not commit suicide. He killed her most likely accidentally with the 
anesthetic. Okay. He may have drowned her in the bathtub on purpose. That's possible. He maybe started doing the abortion, panicked, just says, I got to get rid of this problem. Put her in the bathtub and drowned her. This is what the prosecutor said. And I think the prosecutor was right. He either killed her accidentally or he drowned her on purpose. They proved that it was him there. The manager was very wishy-washy. The Blue Sea Cottages manager was very wishy-washy about the guy he saw that night. And in the end, he couldn't identify anything. They used a handwriting analysis, even though Mr. Johnston had checked in under an assumed name with his wife. And it doesn't take an expert to look at the signatures yeah, <laughs> and see that it's the same guy. Well, my father was a law professor for 37 years, and he often told me when I would talk about cases and I'd say, this guy's guilty. And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. What can you prove? That is the complexity of our legal system, unfortunately. So what ultimately happens to Dr. Lewis Jacobs? He gets off, I'm assuming? He's acquitted in the second trial, and then he goes back to Baltimore, where he was from, tries to start a practice. Obviously, he got kicked out of the public health service for trying to arrange an abortion and bringing discredit on the public health service. He went back, he started a private practice, and he died in 1960. He ended up marrying somebody later on, a much older woman. Hmm. That was another thing that didn't come out during the trial, was that he was in love with another woman at the time, which is why he didn't want to marry Fritzy. And she was much older, wealthy woman. Hmm. What came of Fritzy's mother and brother? Well, seven months later, Helen died. The sister. Correct. So she buried Helen next to Fritzy. And then a year or so later, it's hard to tell exactly when, but within a short period of time, they moved back to Denver. And 1930, I think it was, she had the bodies of her two daughters moved to Denver and buried alongside their father. It's a very sad story and it shouldn't have happened. In this mess of a story, what do you learn from it? About society or what we value? That women were second-class citizens and they had even fewer options then. They had no options. What was her option? If the guy refuses to marry her, she can run off and get the abortion herself and be completely ostracized and have no career, or she can submit to a risky and illegal abortion. Where a very high number of women died. Correct. Very high number. And so... What is your option there? You have no option. And society didn't provide for any other viable options. And so being the headstrong person she was, she threatened him. She didn't take it lying down. She stood up for herself and tried to get him to do the right thing, as they called it then. That's what the man's obligation was under the moral code then, was to do the right thing. But when he didn't, what is she supposed to do? Women had no options. And the patriarchal society at the time was very oppressive, especially to women. It corralled everybody's behavior. Sex is going to happen, right? So unwanted pregnancies were going to happen. And if the man didn't do the right thing, what can you do? So she did what she could, and it cost her her life. On the next episode of Wicked Words... Jerry Williams on the toll that some investigations take on FBI agents. It is definitely stressful because we all know it all rolls downhill. And at the very end, all of that pressure is being applied to the case. And especially when you're trying to hopefully find a 12-year-old girl before she is killed. 
All of that evil and violence and horror and trauma is all in their head. And if there's not a way to release that and to deal with it and talk about it, then it can be very harmful. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.